Gospels to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Some of you may have gone to bed last night after a day of distracting things, only to be kept up for a number of hours thinking about your current situations, the stresses of this life, how the long weekend is here, but Tuesday will come back around. You might be dwelling on your sadness, the despair, the depression that has been growing and growing and growing, and you can find no escape. And perhaps some of you this morning woke up and thought, I'm not going to fit in if I go into a place of real happy people. Bullet Lake Baptist Church, I've heard all they do is smile and hug people, which is partially true, but maybe that's just what you needed this morning. Well, I assure you that you're not alone. Because I myself have walked into the pulpit this morning hauling some baggage that I thought was too heavy and baggage that I thought invalidated me from opening such a comforting word. As Dr. Ork does, he asks me a couple weeks in advance, sometimes just a couple of hours, but usually a couple weeks in advance, and uh, I was able to prepare a sermon on Balaam's talking donkey. Oh, what a unique sermon. We don't usually hear sermons about Balaam's talking donkey. I was prepared to tell you all how God uses unlikely means of opening eyes. And in numbers, it was a talking donkey. Yes, a real talking donkey. But I found that my eyes were closed this week more than they have been in previous weeks. Oftentimes just closed with tears or closed with exhaustion. I thought I could I can't get in the pulpit and preach about the opening of eyes when mine, in fact, have been so closed to the point where that they hurt. And so I moved on to another passage that's been comforting to me. Genesis 1, the first day of creation. You know that the first thing God created wasn't a perfect green and blue luscious earth. It was dark chaos. But over the dark chaos, what was hovering? The Spirit of God. And God said, let there be light. And then in Genesis 1, just in the first day of creation, we see the foundation for all of Scripture in this. God separated the light from the darkness. But I found myself traversing with my eyes closed to make matters worse through dark chaos like I had not done in some time. I thought, I've got to move on. There's, there's got to be some verse of Scripture that can answer the calling and the crying of my soul. There has to be a Scripture that can open my eyes and answer questions that I'm asking like this. What is my resolve? What is my purpose? Where do I look? When will I be freed from this pain and sadness and misery? And will anyone hear me? I know I'm going to sound like a pitiful husband here. But my wife was out of town this week. And that was awful. I mean, I I am so sick and tired of frozen pizza at this point. So I'm really, I'm thankful to the people who uh, brought me food and reached out to me as if I was going through some horrendous trial. It was just my wife was out of town. And there were some other things on my plate that made me quite sad, but it was a tough week. 
a really tough weekend. Usually my wife would be there to listen, but she wasn't. And before I went to bed, I just had to say goodnight to a dog and two cats. It was sad. Good night, boys. There's no I love you. I, I guess I do love them. But. but perhaps you were asking similar questions this morning. What is your purpose in this life? Who do you turn to? Where do you look when you're struggling? When times really seem dark? Perhaps some of you this morning are having difficulties in your marriage. You dread the thought of going back to school or back to work. Where do you turn? Who will hear you? And Micah chapter 7 verse 7 stood out to me. Amongst the perfectly unvisited crisp pages of scripture like I mentioned in the prayer earlier. This verse shone out like a light in a dark room. Perhaps some of you avid Bible readers can you know, turn through your Bible. And there are some pages that are creased and taped and wrinkled and damp from highlighter ink. I'd venture to say that Micah chapter 7 is not one of those pages. But a page in Micah, a page in Obadiah, or in Jude, or Philemon, is the Word of God. All 783,000 words in the Bible are God-breathed and profitable for rebuke, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And I bring you here this morning to Micah 7, verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God, my God will hear me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. And for a word which is incredibly true today as it was hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Help us to realize that we must have a resolve that is unique from the world. That we must turn our soul's attention to you and to you alone. Help us to see that the Christian's patience is found in being content in what you have to provide. And help us to have the great comfort of knowing that we serve a God who hears. Amen. At the beginning of this year, I'm sure some of you set some New Year's resolutions, and I would venture to say most of you have uh, resolved to not stick to those resolutions. Right? For me, I remember telling some of my students, my goal this year is to become so fit, so strong, so massive that I have to sell my entire wardrobe. So huge that when you see me on December 31st, you'll say, who is that man? And uh, I have forsaken that New Year's resolution. <laughs> and I'm sure some of you have done the same thing. But some of you, I know, have partaken of some New Year's resolutions that have utterly changed your life. Some of you have read the Bible in just a mere six months, six and a half months. You've, you've seen spiritual growth, intellectual growth. And you think, the person that I was on December 31st of last year is an unrecognizable man or woman to the person that I am now. Praise the Lord for those of you who have, who have stuck to those resolutions. Or some of my runners that I've coached over the years. They have resolved to be the best possible runners they can be. They've changed their diet. 
They've changed their sleeping habits. They've changed their thinking habits. They wake up at 4 or 5 in the morning before school to get an extra run in. What's the result? Well, they become better runners. That's true. But that resolution at its foundation branches out to impact other areas of their life. These young men and young women that I've coached, the ones that resolve to do more and to commit their lives to this goal, they're upstanding students. They're great friends, great children, obedient to their parents. And one day, this is, this is my hope for these kids, is not that they go off to be professional runners, but that they go off and, one, serve the Lord, but be good husbands and, mother, husbands and fathers, be good wives and mothers. And that starts with a foundational resolution. My question to you this morning is what is your purpose? And what do you base your resolve? And really that question can be expanded to ask this. What God have you resolved to serve? Like Joshua, have you, cho- have you chosen to serve a false God? A God of this nation or a God of this religion? Or, as I will mention a couple times this morning, the God of self? Or, have you chosen to serve the God of salvation? The one true living God? That's my question this morning. What God have you decided to serve? Who is God over your life? Who sits on the throne of your heart? Because you must know that the the resolution at its foundation of who you will serve impacts all areas of your life. You see, all gods offer promises. But how they deliver on those promises is starkly different. You know, the Christian or the human desires a feeling of happiness. And how does the world offer that promise to be granted? What does the world offer for happiness? They say, go and pursue a money-making career. Devote your life to building up your wallet. But the Christian, we say, our, our joy is in the Lord. If I lose all here, I know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. You might have a desire to feel a certain level of being special and loved and cared for. And so the world says... Well, explore all these. I've got a list of sexual fantasies that you can follow after. Be whatever you want to be. We're going to coddle to all of those desires. But the Christian says we feel special because God chose us from the foundation of his plan for eternity. He knew us. He knows us and he will know us. We are his children. The world says, do you want to feel free Well, don't have kids and don't get married. That's what the world says. But we know that God says, be fruitful and multiply. Have kids. Get married. Bring those kids to church. We'll love on them. We'll care for them. And so will God. Do you want to enjoy leisure? You want to have fun? Well, the world says, live it up today. Eat, drink, and be merry. Well, the Christian says we see leisure differently because our free time and our thoughts, whether it's it's fishing, we know that the fish were provided by the Lord. Whether it's hiking, we know that the mountains were formed by his perfect hand. Every stone and every pebble on the path. 
or whether it's sitting in, in a room by ourselves with nothing to do, our thoughts can even be devoted to the Lord. Do you want to escape reality? Is the real world too difficult, too painful? Well, the world says we've got an escape for you. Smoke a lot of weed, drink a lot of alcohol, and disappear from reality. Enter a new universe. And we say no. Our comfort is in reality. Because the spiritual reality is reality. And we're living in it. And probably the greatest question. Are you ready to die happily? The world says, well in order to die happily... You've got to know that you only live once, so live it up. But for the Christian, we know that our final exhale on earth is followed by an inhale in heaven. And that is how the Christian dies happily. What is your resolve this morning? Have you resolved to serve the God who offers promises of eternal joy? Or are you falling into the trap of temporary highs that the world has to offer. Because the temporary high that the world serves on a silver platter will be met with an eternal low. But for us in this world, though it seems bleak, though it seems painful, though it seems difficult and oftentimes blasé, we say our joy is in the eternal high that we will feel. Who will you serve? Are you willing to forsake the God of self for the sake of God of salvation? Or the other way around? Will you build up your possessions now for the sake of what you could trade in that is eternity? Joshua says, but as for me. Micah says, but as for me. And if you turn in your Bibles just a couple of pages back to Micah chapter 4. We read this, Micah chapter 4, verse 5, for all the peoples walk, all the peoples walk, each in the name or character of its God, but we, this is a Christian's resolution, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Can you say like Micah this morning? Can you say like Joshua? But as for me, but as for me, though the world does this, though my friends do that, though my family urges me in this direction, but as for me, I will serve the Lord my God. I will walk in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will look to the Lord. We've seen first the Christian's resolution. Now we'll look at the Christian's focus. In verse 7 of chapter 7, Micah says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. Now, I would assume that none of us are experts on the book of Micah. Maybe some of us have read it and studied it and have an understanding of this. But certainly all of us have at least a little bit of an understanding of the Old Testament. It's a story of the Jewish people, the Israelites. You know that this is God's people. He took them out of Egypt, brought them through the wilderness into a promised land. And this is not a faithful people. They've turned to false gods. They've griped. They've complained. 
And the greatest sin is that they've turned away. They've looked away from the Lord their God. And that is the same condition that we are in today. We are surrounded by a world of people who are purposefully turning away from God. And we have to resolve to be like Micah so as to say, they will do that, but I will do this. I know I bring up my runners a lot when I preach, but they, they provide a lot of illustrations. Uh, I encourage my runners not to race with a watch. Because when they race with a watch, you know, they might be in a competitive moment, but then their mind fades away and thinks, I should probably check my time, make sure I'm going fast enough. And then sometimes a competitor will run right past them because they're not paying attention. Or maybe you're guilty of when you're driving to Lexington, you just look over in the field of, of cows and you point out to the people in your car, there are cows over there because they are distracting. Or horses. And then you, at the last second, see the brake lights in front of you. Or maybe some of you, you, you read a book, and you finish a page or a chapter, and you think, I have no idea what I just read. Or maybe some of you, even listening to this sermon, have been thinking about uh, the Kentucky game yesterday, or a conversation that you've had or need to have, or perhaps right now you're thinking of your fantasy football team, or lunch, and you haven't re- heard a word I've said this morning, and maybe you'll snap back in now. You see, the point is we get distracted. And to whatever we direct our attention, that attention grabber then directs our lives in that direction. What grabs your attention this morning? Micah is not asking you where your eyes are physically, but where the eyes of your soul are pointed. Are the eyes of your soul seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or are your Is your soul seeking how you can be better fed, better clothed, better made comfortable? Do you look to the world, the God of self, or do you look to the God of salvation? Think about this. If you look to the world in a time of trial and difficult times... The world is going to to place you on a treadmill on which you run and run and run and acquire more means of comfort. But you'll get nowhere. You'll always be searching for more because the treadmill won't turn off. But for the Christian, we know that in times of trial, because we serve the God of salvation, we drink from an eternal well. We lie in green pastures. We, We can lap up still waters. We know that we have an assurance of God's love and an everlasting peace that is unique and foreign to the world. In times of confusion, wading through the unknown, if the God of self is on the throne of your heart, where do you find answers to unanswered questions? Well, in science and in theories and and a grasping for straws. But that doesn't satisfy because they are just theories from the minds of imperfect men. But if in times of confusion you are a Christian, you can ask the Lord for wisdom. And he will grant wisdom. Because what good father would give a bad gift to his son that asks? What about in times of sin and temptation? When you know 
as all of you in this room do, when you sin, you know you've done something wrong. Where do you turn? Well, if you turn to the world with your grief, we read in in Corinthians that you will surely die. A worldly grief leads to death. You will look for support. You will look for a way out from your friends of this world. But they will just reassure you and say, you are just who you are. God made you perfect. So wallow in your sin. We're, We're here to love you anyway. But for the Christian in sin and temptation, when a lie is on the tip of your tongue, when a provocative photo or video is on your screen, when ill-wishing and anger in your heart causes you to wish something bad on someone else, when all of that sin and temptation is in your mind and in your heart and nearly produces a, a certain level of sin that you couldn't fathom before, And you turn to the God of salvation. And you look to the example of Jesus Christ. And how the bloody sacrifice of Jesus hanging on a tree. You can say that was for me. And this sin put him there. That's the hope that the Christian has. The Christian's focus turns them to the Lord. And causes them to look. And maybe some of you this morning. I know some of you might be asking this, and I'm speaking directly to you. You might be asking, what must I do to be saved? God is real. I know He's real, but I know I'm not right with Him. What must I do to be saved? I came to church this morning. Is that that good? Does that get me points? I read the Bible a couple weeks ago, or as a kid, I think, I read it. I was baptized when I was young. Do I need to do more good things so as to outweigh the bad? But God gives us a concise answer in Isaiah 45. For those of you who desire to be saved, God says this. Look unto me. Look unto me and be ye saved. He does not say do this or do that or accomplish these things or visit this place or donate this money. He says, look, look. Look with your soul's eyes, and you shall be saved. I ask you this morning, have you looked? Will you look? Some of you know the story of Charles Spurgeon and his salvation. Perhaps the greatest preacher, besides Jesus Christ, to ever live was Charles Spurgeon. His ministry over the last nearly 200 years has impacted Perhaps millions of now Christians. I read some of his sermons and have enjoyed reading them with some of my Christian brothers in the past. And uh, Well, how could someone who at the age of 19 was perhaps the world's most famous preacher, how could that man be saved? Well, the story goes something like this. He was walking to church one morning. It was snowing very heavily outside and he couldn't make it to his own church. So he stumbled into this little Methodist church. The storm was so bad, he sat in the back and the preacher of that church couldn't even show up. He was snowed in. And so an untrained deacon stepped up into the pulpit and preached the sermon from Isaiah 45. And Charles Spurgeon sitting in the back must have felt that the preacher's, well the deacon's eyes were gazing right into his and piercing his heart. The deacon spoke these words, look, 
unto me and be ye saved. And Charles Spurgeon was saved because he looked unto the Lord. Some of you this morning have looked unto the Lord. And you might remember it. You might remember the details of how the day before such a sinful, broken, decrepit, wretched human you were. But then you saw something anew. Your chains fell off. I think of Saul, one of the greatest Christian killers of all time. On the road to Damascus, the Lord blinded him so that he may see. The Lord Jesus Christ spit in dirt, made mud, and wiped it on a blind man's eyes so that he could see. He sent an angel of the Lord to Hagar in the wilderness when she was dying of thirst. The angel opened her eyes so that she could see the well that gave life to her and her son. I ask you this morning, what will the Lord do to open your eyes so that you may look unto him? Will he use a tragedy The loss of a friend or a family member. Will the Lord use sickness? Will the Lord use despair? Or will he use joy? Or will he use this sermon or his word? But I beg of you this morning to look unto him. But what benefit is this looking? Puts us in a new position. We'll continue in verse 7. We've seen the Christian resolution. We've seen the Christian's focus, and now we will see the Christian's patience. You know, patience is a virtue. I always hated hearing that when I was a kid. Are we there yet? Can we get to do this yet? Can I go outside? Can I do this or that? Is dinner almost ready? Patience is a virtue. You're kidding me. How do you tell patience to to a young man or a young woman like I was told for so long? Who wants to be married so bad. Just just be patient. Trust in the Lord's timing. How do you say be patient to a grieving mother or a grieving father or a grieving friend over the loss of someone that they love so much? Be patient. Time will heal. Just trust in the Lord. Or how do you say be patient to a man who knows that he is wallowing in his sin like a pig that's rolling in the mud? How can you just say be patient? Well, I really have a hard time doing that. But I'm going to give it my best attempt by quoting perhaps one of the most known verses of Scripture, Philippians 4.13. Athletes, you probably know this. And if you're like me, when I was a relatively immature Christian, before a race, I would kneel on the ground and pray, Lord, I know that through you I can do all things. Help me win this race, please. Or uh, before a test. Lord, I know with your strength I can do all things. I really need this test to be to go well. Um, Help me, please. But what that verse really means is that the Christian can be content in all things. Because they know that they are waiting on not an imperfect God, not on a God who doesn't have a plan. They're waiting on a God of salvation. Yes, God can save you from present troubles of physical and mental setbacks and and difficulties. But I believe that this God of salvation offers a salvation that is far greater than being delivered from your physical temporary troubles of this world. This is a God of salvation who looks at some of you this morning 
Some of us, what you once were, an enemy of God and says, I will love you. I hung my son on a cross for your sins so that you could be made new and be brought into my family and into my kingdom in which I have prepared a room for you in a mansion. The God of salvation is worth waiting for. The world may offer sin on a silver platter or perhaps wrapped up in a bow. But will you resolve to say, I will look away from that? I will repent of my sins and I will wait on the God of my salvation? Stephen did. Stephen the martyr in in Acts. Stephen preached a sermon, the most toe-crushing Heart-breaking sermon, perhaps in, in, uh, in all of Scripture. Maybe it's in the top ten of convicting sermons. What's my evidence for it being so convicting? Well, they killed him for saying it. After speaking these words, some 50 or 60 verses of such a powerful sermon, the angry mob rose up against him and began to stone him, hurling stones at his body. And I imagine Stephen on the ground, unable to move, blood pouring out of his body, perhaps blinded with pain. Stephen looks up into heaven. He looks into heaven. Either with his physical eyes or his his spiritual eyes, he turns his gaze to the Lord. And he sees Jesus not sitting at the right hand of God, but standing At the right hand of God. So as to say Stephen. My servant. Well done. I am the God of your salvation. And today. You will be with me. And I imagine that a stone was thrown. One final stone. That crushed Stephen's temple. And and tore apart the last strain of consciousness and life. that That Stephen had. And with that blow, his soul was triumphantly catapulted and disbanded from his body into the arms of his Savior, the God of his salvation, in whom he waited for. Will you wait for the God of salvation this morning? Will you be patient in your suffering, in the trials of this life, in confusion, in pain, in loss? Will you wait and be content We read in Isaiah 12. I'll read it again. Well, I'm not going to turn to it. No, I turned right to it. It's perfect. It's the Lord's providence. (laughs) You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid. For the Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. Talk about a unique hope. And that is my fourth point. The unique hope for the Christian. Micah says, my God will hear me. I think he intimates a couple of things. And something I want to encourage you to do as you read scripture is think about every word. I mentioned earlier that there are 783,000 words In the Bible, I had Mallory look that up for me on the way to church this morning so I could use it. It would be difficult to consider every word, but perhaps in these weighty verses, 
my God will hear me. You focus on each one. The first word, my. Micah can say, my God will hear me. Can you hold up this book, the holy word this morning and say, the God of this Bible, he's my God. This God in this Bible, the one who created all things, sustained all things and will see all things through. He's my God. And I know him. What do you know about him? Does he know you? Do you read his word? He gave it to us. What does he require of you? Do you know? Do you talk to him? If you don't breathe, and if you don't drink water, I assume that you are a dead person. If you don't pray, I assume that you are a dead soul. I'll say that again because it's heavy. If you don't breathe, you're dead. But if you don't pray, I don't see how you can be a Christian. A Christian without prayer is like a fish without water. It's like a kite with no wind. It's like a boat with no rudder. Lifeless. Falling. Aimless. The Christian has a unique hope because they know my God will hear, hear me. Well, if you know this God, you ought to be praying to him. You, got, you ought to be talking to him. Because that is where our waiting finds comfort. That is where we find the God of our salvation. We can pray to God and ask him for so many good things, but you should know this. That God knows that what we need is better than what we want. God knows that what we need is better than what we want. We ought to pray as the Lord instructed us. May thy will be done. Gods of this world, the God of self, they require flattery. They like their ears to be tickled. Idols of old require carrying and maintenance because even the wind can knock them down. And other gods of other religions, they require you to fill deep offering plates and to tally up your points on a scoreboard. They require your money and your good works. But our God created the ear. Our God requires worship. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. Will you pray to him? Do you know him? Even Jesus, in his final hours, prayed to the Lord. Knowing that his sacrifice was looming, he prayed, Let this cup pass from me. But, nevertheless, thy will be done. Is that your prayer this morning? Is your prayer this, Lord, I want this, I want that, I want to be married, I want children, I want this job, I want this happiness, I want this cure, but thy will be done. Lord, I know that what you can give, what your perfect plan is, is better than whatever I could have dreamed up. And so, Lord, thy will be done. 
And the man that prays like that, the woman that prays like that, the child that prays like that, prays with a 100% success rate. The reason why I don't play basketball anymore is because my shooting percentage was so low that it was laughable. And if you are someone who prays with your intentions in mind, you will be like me playing basketball. Where your shooting percentage is so low that you walk off the court, as I've said a couple times, and you say, I'm retired. I'm done shooting. It's not worth it. But if you can pray like Jesus prayed, I'm hesitant to say the Kobe Bryant of prayer, but the the Jesus Christ type prayer, your shooting percentage will be 100% because the Lord's will will be done. And that is the Christian's resolution. I will resolve to serve the Lord. I will resolve to look to the Lord. Because I know that the Christian has a unique patience and a unique hope. You could meet your God even today. And Amos, in chapter 4 of Amos, gives probably the scariest verse of all scripture. After dishing out some condemnation, Amos says, Prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. I ask you this morning, are you prepared to meet your God? Do you know that on the way to El Nepal this morning, or on the way home, that could be it? It could be the end. How do you respond to the Christian resolution that has been set before us this morning? Have you resolved to live a unique life, the life of the Christian? Have you resolved to set your eyes upon Jesus? Have you looked unto Him? You may think to yourself, you know, He's got a point. I've not looked unto Him. I don't know Him. I should probably take care of business tonight when I get home. You know, after this long weekend and, you know, we're going to go do this or that tomorrow, then I'll get serious with the Lord. But you know, tomorrow is not promised. And am I begging you this morning to listen to my words? Yes, I'm begging you. Look unto God. Look unto God, children. Look unto God, old people who have not yet looked. Look unto Him and be saved. So that when you meet God, He says, what are you bringing before me that I may allow you into my kingdom? You don't say, Lord, I've I've brought this bag of filthy rags you say lord i went to church i prayed this prayer i was baptized but as you are cast into an eternity separated from him that bag will fall to the floor like ashes but are you prepared to meet your god and say the lord jesus christ i know him very well and because he died and bled for me i need not fear hell Resolve to look unto the God of salvation. Let's pray.